0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Kino, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, 9 a.m. Pacific time on February the 2nd, a Thursday, 2023. Uh, The crypto story continues to play out. Um, The story yesterday is that Sam Bankman freed the FTX chieftain. His bail is being tightened over the threat of witness tampering. Um, Apparently the judge ruled that he must stop contacting former employees of FTX. It's beginning to increasingly sound like some sort of mob trial. He might not look like the godfather, but maybe he is the digital version. There was a very interesting piece um, in the Wall Street Journal today by Charlie Munger. Why America should ban crypto? According to Charlie Munger, it isn't currency. It's a gambling contract with nearly a hundred percent edge for the house. Um, The Munger piece is attracted a lot of headlines. Um, uh, CNBC suggests that Ma- Munger is saying that the U.S. should follow China's footsteps and ban cryptocurrencies, not perhaps the first or the last time that America follows China on digital policy. Charlie Munger, for those of you who don't know, is a billionaire investor and the vice chairman of Burke. Cher Hathaway. He's the right-hand man of Warren Buffett, so he knows his way around the financial world. He's not just another opinionator. Another man who has some strong feelings about regulating crypto is my guest today on the show, Thomas Vatanian. Had a piece um, a couple of weeks, uh, a few weeks ago, in the Financial Times, suggesting that FTX's predictable failings show the need for Uh, crypto-regulation, and he had another interesting piece um, uh, in January out on the Hill, Death of the Crypto Formula. Uh, Tom has a new book out, uh, which I think summarizes his position on regulation and making the Internet safe. It's called The Unhackable Internet, How Rebuilding Cyberspace Can Create Real Security and Prevent financial collapse. Tom is joining us from Sarasota, Florida, on the west coast of Florida, where I'm sure the sun is shining. Uh, Tom, uh, in order to create what you call an unhackable internet, do you think we need to ban crypto? Is it just rotten? Is 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 Charlie Munger right? Well, you know, Andrew, and, and thank you for having me here. Uh,
1: <clears throat> I've written a few op-eds like Charlie, basically saying that uh, crypto is a problem. And it's a problem largely because there's no there there. You know, if you look back at the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis, all of those subprime mortgages and all of the mortgage-backed securities that were built out of those subprime mortgages were essentially based at the end of the day, if you dug down to the bottom, there was a home securing a mortgage that created those instruments. So there was some value there. When you, when you dig down into crypto, there's nothing there but air, right? It, it is completely manufactured out of whole cloth by almost anybody and anything. And I think the problem with crypto, the fundamental problem with it, I, I don't think I would ban it because I, I wanna give people the right to lose money but i would control it and i would regulate it more so that people who think the government is is regulating it aren't going to be fooled into investing because they're relying on some you know amorphous idea that the reg- that the government is letting it happen but if you take for a few examples andrew transparency i mean there's got to be transparency in this stuff there's got to be control of who is issuing the stuff so Let me give you a very small example, and I wrote this in my op-ed in The Hill. Uh, I worked 40 years in the financial services business and technology and for investors and and financial institutions around the world. And if you want to buy 15% of the shares in a community bank anywhere, West Coast, East Coast, 15% of the shares in a community bank, you have to go through a regulatory strip search for about six months explaining to the regulators why they should let you buy 15% of the bank. Now, compare that to crypto. If you want to issue a cryptocurrency tomorrow morning and you're a convicted felon, you can. So there's no control of of the delivery system. There's no control of the product. And my goodness, if you look back at the history of financial services and all of the uh, financial disasters and panics we've had, that's a perfect formula for a disaster to have no control, no limitation, on the kinds of people that can be involved in the business and what they can do.
0: Tom, uh, next week, I hope to have uh, another uh, big time uh, tech security expert, Bruce Schneier, on the show. He has an interesting new book out next week, like yours, A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society Rules and How to Bend Them Back. If you compare, though, your theses, Schneier is in the business of trying to control the hacker's mind. You're, you seem to be suggesting um, that the problem isn't so much the ethic of hacking, but the internet. Um, how do we create an unhackable internet? It sounds like a contradiction in terms. Does it mean entirely re-architecting the whole thing? And how realistic is that?
1: Yeah. So I, I lay it out in the book. And by the way, uh, Bruce is uh, is one of my idols. I cite him in the book uh, several times. I think yeah, he's, he's one really, of
0: all our idols. He's really good.
1: Yeah, he's really smart and he's, he's really clued in. And so let me tell you what, what my thesis is, because I was a technology acolyte. I mean, I worked in the 1990s and 2000s helping financial institutions, enjoy the euphoria of the internet, create online interfaces for their customers, create efficiencies, create profit, and, you know, compete online for the business that they were beforehand uh, competing for uh, in the real world, in the analog world. And as we got into the 2010s and, and even later, I started to have a little bit of a concern about how we had all been hypnotized by technology. And I finally concluded, after doing it for 30 years, that we had all been captured and hypnotized by the euphoria of technology. And we hadn't stopped to think about the security risks that we were creating. And so what I've now suggested, and I think this is a dialogue and a discussion that has to happen at this point. I've suggested that we created the wrong Internet. If you talk to all the pioneers back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s who were responsible for the creation of the Internet, they will tell you they never created it to be secure. They never created it to, to house every inch of but data. Who are you,
0: when you say you talk to, I mean, who, 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 who did you talk to? Because even the idea of the creation of the Internet sounds a little fuzzy to me. I mean, what, what, what exactly are you talking about and who are you talking to? Yeah, no, I don't
1: want, I don't want to list names here, but I just, I've talked to some people who, have, who claim to be there at the birth of the internet.
0: Well, everyone was. I live out in San Francisco. Everyone yeah, right. Be there. No, I mean, but I, it's not like building the San Francisco... It's not like, like building the Golden Gate Bridge. It wasn't as if you had a few thousand people right. working on a project. This was a very haphazard. Thing.
1: Well, yeah, it started in 1969. The ARPANET was connect was 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 morphed into a into an internet that connected four universities in this country, four universities, and from there it went to a number of more universities. But that was a system that was meant to share some databases among universities. It wasn't meant to house all of the wealth of all of the nations online, which it does now.
0: Right. Now, I take that point. But, I mean, realistically, Tom, you're not going to be able, you know, you're not, not going to be able, it, it's like rebuilding the New York subway. I mean, right. clearly, if you go on the New York subway, it's archaic and it smells bad and it's creepy and dark, but you can't just rebuild it. I mean, it would take trillions of dollars. Um, yeah, that's and it's exactly not realistic.
1: Right. It's exactly what I say. I ask the question and I say the likelihood of rebuilding this internet is somewhere between slim and none. So, what do we have to do? We have to change the aspects of the internet that are most important. And those are the aspects that relate to critical infrastructures. And the critical infrastructure I know the best dealing with for 45 years is financial services and the financial services payments, investments, and money business in this country. And so, what do you need to do? You need to to go back to where financial services were in the 1970s when I started. Everybody used secure private networks. There was no internet, open architecture internet. There was secure private networks. So what I think we need to do is start thinking about keeping the internet that we've got and using it for the lesser important things, the lesser secure things in our lives. But if you want to do something that involves a critical infrastructure, money, any kind of important data you then transition into a secure private network and what's the, what are the features of that network number 1 you got to authenticate yourself to a person you got to authentic authentication has to be to a person not to an ip address not to a machine we have to know who's wandering around in cyberspace this anonymity thing is really really dangerous you can but see every day
0: there isn't that the, the, the de facto r- fix that's actually happening. If you go, you know, I bank at Wells Fargo, I can't access my account without uh, authenticating myself. And that's true of most financial networks online.
1: No, you're authenticating an IP address or a machine. You're not a ca- authenticating a person. And that takes lots of different software biometrics and other things that we're not using right now. And why are we not using these things? because they're inconvenient, right? Nobody wants to inconvenient the consumer and to to create better authentication, better transparency, zero trust architecture, the government's talking about. Joe Biden put out an executive directive on zero trust architecture in the government. All of those things slow down the internet, all of those things create costs and nobody wants to do them because they think it's inconvenient it's okay the way it is. Well, the problem is, being okay the way it is, is we are on a trajectory to all kinds of financial Armageddons and all kinds of problems because- What's the
0: worst case? You, you, um, Your last book, uh, for people watching, uh, Tom is clearly not shy. He has a big picture of uh, his last book, 200 Years of American Financial Panic, and the, the new book, The Unhackable Internet, is next to it. Uh, I mean, what's the worst case scenario, Tom, of what could go wrong on the financial front when it comes to financial collapse? Is it a, yeah. is it, is it a crypto scam? Is it hacking, uh, hacking uh, I don't know, Wells Fargo or Amazon or Google? Yeah, so uh, let me give you an example from the real world. And
1: look, there have been denial of service attacks on 16 major banks in this country over the last 10 years there have been ransomware attacks there've been all kinds. There've been, there've been hacks that have taken hundreds of thousands of files but here's the real financial armageddon that that's that that could happen and has happened so in estonia in 2007 in ukraine they have actually woken up and their money has been gone your account is gone your banking facility is gone and that's have- a
0: russian orchestrated the, uh, they people call yeah. the, the first digital world war, or the first digital war.
1: Yeah, and, and the allegation is the Russians have been behind that. But, Which is you know, more
0: than an allegation. It's it's probably pretty certain, isn't it, Tom?
1: Well, I, you know, <laughs> I, I everybody seems to think it's certain, but as a lawyer, I never decide certainty unless I touch and feel and smell it myself, mm. uh, and, and I haven't done that here. But... Look, if you take all of the different pieces and parts of hacks and cyber attacks and, and stealing of information and corrupting of systems that have happened around the world, and there are thousands, thousands of them, and there's, uh, you know, you can see that if all of those happened at one time in one place, everything would stop. You, you, you wouldn't be able to do anything. In the book, I give an example that starts with somebody going to a coffee shop and trying to use the app on his phone, which has been corrupted buy a game that was downloaded onto the phone that then moves the, the malware into the the coffee shop's national system that then moves to its bank and then moves to atms and all everything right
0: else. so so it's i wonder tom if you can separate what's happening on the internet from what's happening more broadly in our financial world we've done a number of shows on financial corruption and, te- and kleptocracy we did one earlier this week with frank vogel a distinguished American anti-corruption person. I'm doing one actually later today with Raymond Baker, who has a new book out, Invisible uh, Trillions. We've done work with Tom Burgess. He has an important book out, Kleptopia. Um, So how is this separate from the broader crisis, if you like, of um, the the corruption of our financial system itself? Yeah, so here's, here's,
1: that's a terrific question, because that merges these issues. They merge at a particular point. I mean, why do we keep having Bernie Madoffs? Why do we keep having Sam Bankman Freeds? Uh, and here's the answer to that question. Today in this country, we have a system that focuses regulation, prudential regulation, not just, you know, disclosure regulation, but prudential regulation. What I mean by that is regulators tell you if you can be in business, how much capital you have to have, how much liquidity you have to have, when you can merge, when you can pay a dividend, and when you can close the company. That's prudential regulation, not just disclosure regulation. So, all of that is focused on banks today. Why is it focused on banks? Because that system was embedded in the 1930s after the Great Depression. In the 1930s, after the Great Depression, banks controlled 95% of the financial services economy in this country. Well, look at what's happened. Since the 1930s, banks now control about 35% of the financial services economy. The other 65% is in a whole range of private equity, hedge funds, crypto, insurance companies, uh, retail, non-bank financial providers, fintechs. All of them take up the other 65%. And guess what? They're not prudentially regulated. So here's the problem. We've got 100% of government regulatory resources, Regulating thirty-five percent of the market. Now, yeah, you it's know- really—it's
0: a really important point, particularly given that, of course, um, the Great Depression happened not because of the Wall Street crash, but because of the the banking crisis in the nineteen thirties. So, I- is that replicable, That 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 those seventy percent—if they all went out of business tomorrow, if we lost all the fintechs and all the credit card companies and all the other unregulated. Financial institutions, Tom. Would we be back in the Great Depression? Uh, you know, uh,
1: <laughs> if we lost uh, a, a good section of the banking business, it still drives so much of the economy that would we we would be in very tough shape. But let me let me suggest to you what the answer is here to this problem, with sixty five percent of the financial services business of, of the the money business being outside of the regulatory sphere. What the answer is, is basically to do what we recommended in 1984. In 1984, President Reagan asked his vice president, George uh, Bush, um, George H.W. Bush, that is, uh, to chair a task force and come up with a new way to regulate financial, financial services in America. And that task force came up with a proposal to regulate not institutions, but financial activities. If we had done that in 1984 and started regulating financial activities, Bernie Madoff would have been more regulated. Sam Bankman-Fried would have been more regulated. Perhaps they wouldn't have even been allowed in the business. And we would have been regulating 100% of the financial services market, not just 35%, which happened to hang a sign outside that says bank. And that's the problem. We're not regulating financial services symmetrically. There is an enormously asymmetrical approach to financial regulation. And guess what happens, Andrew? When that happens, all of the high-risk activities go to places that are unregulated. So it's counterproductive.
0: Right. It's, it's, it's Jay, when someone asks, was it Jesse James? Why banks? He says because they're there. So and inevitably, right. the the Bernie Madoffs and the Sam Bankman-Frieds of the world—they know. They don't go to work at banks, they go to work in institutions where they can steal and cheat. Um, Speaking of great journalists, uh, in a couple of weeks I've got the FT economics uh, correspondent Martin Wolf, the columnist. He has a new book out, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, um, in which he gets into a lot of these broader issues of the insecurity of our financial system. From your point of view, Tom, you're a political guy, you're a conservative, you work with the Federalist Society. How fearful are you of the implications of of the stuff you write about uh, for politics and perhaps the rise of one kind of authoritarianism or another?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, um, it's an interesting question because what I argue in my book, 200 Years of American Financial Panics, is that politics is really creating a really vast number of financial exposures and risks that are going to explode in our face. And and the reason for that is that we're regulating, we've begun to, when I started in in, in financial regulation in 1976 in the Carter administration, I never felt a hint of politics in the regulation of financial services. What we were regulating was money and helping the consumer to be protected in that Vast array of money uh, uh, transactions going back and forth. Here we are today, and there's no doubt in my mind, and anybody of my vintage and who's been around for 45 years will tell you that we've politicized the business of banking. You know, whether it be uh, climate change or who can who can borrow from what bank, uh, you know, we've now politicized the business greatly. And what that does is it takes our eye off. The economy and puts it on politics but,
0: uh, i have always hear this oh we we politicize it i mean the greatest politicizer of the financial sector was fdr and, and and he was most people would agree a great american president and he died almost a century ago so um i mean the the, rea- the reality is is that finance is so important it so affects all of us on a, on a daily minute by minute basis that it's unavoidably political isn't it tom well no, I think it's getting, I I would I would differ with that. I it
1: has in the past as I said, not been political and it is getting more and more political because because the politicians realize it's a choke point on the economy and if they can go after it and they can control it and they can change it, they change the world right and and it's not the ways it oh, I should the I world. mean that's what
0: politicians do. You're uh, I mentioned earlier. Uh, you're involved with the uh, Federalist uh, Society. In fact, I think you're the Executive Director of the Financial Technology and S- Cybersecurity Center there. Um, Federalist Society is one of the more distinguished think tanks, I think, for conservative thought. Um, one of the headlines on the Federalist Society is about the Gonzales versus Google Supreme Court case uh, in, in, in a couple of weeks. Um, What's your position on, on on these big regulatory cases coming up, particularly on Section 230, which really theoretically could change everything about the Internet? Yeah,
1: yeah. So uh, just one point of clarification. I'm not involved with the Federalist Society. I've written for them and I've spoken for them. But right. The Financial Technology and Cybersecurity Center is an independent think tank.
0: Uh, okay, and from- that, that's your... That's your day job, financial technology. Yeah, stuff. that's that's my day hobby, right? Um, so you know, I was
1: around when when all these issues were created, and and looked at, and and you know, two thirty, and all of those laws uh, came about. And the question was, and I remember debating this because I was the chairman of the cyberspace law committee of the American Bar Association. Then we were debating this back and forth, and the question was, when you set up this digital parking lot, eBay, Amazon, Google, whatever it is, and you're allowing everybody to put stuff on in your parking lot as if it was a garage sale in a parking lot. Should you be liable for what the people are doing in that parking lot? And the conclusion that was drawn is, well, you're just the guy who, who, who opened up the parking lot. You didn't have anything to do. with what was being sold. What was being said. And when that started, that was the right answer but as we've seen what's happened is the big tech companies have morphed into something far more different than they were at the beginning i mean look at the way i don't know if you've you've uh, you've ever read shoshana zuboff's book yeah shoshana
0: a- was i in fact i blurb the book and she she was on the show a few years ago yeah she so.
1: she's just terrific i mean she she talks about the age of surveillance capitalism and how the data is collected, sliced, and diced, and sent around in ways that people cannot imagine. And they don't understand they're the product, they're the inventory
0: of, of big tech. So I take the point. So, so are you on the Gonzalez case when uh, on, on the, the side of Gonzalez on this Section two? Would you like to see Section 230 eliminated by the court?
1: I'd like to see it changed. I, I think I think what you have to do, here's the problem with regulation and laws. We, we make them in one era, and, and, and things, cultures change, technologies change, and the law becomes, in effect, irrelevant. I don't know, I don't think I would eliminate what it does. I would change it to match what the markets do, and that's only fair.
0: Well, there's a lot here. Um, the unhackable Internet, how rebuilding cyberspace can create real security and prevent financial collapse, an important conversation, not the first or the last contribution to it. Uh, Tom, congratulations on the new book. Um, As we said, it's a huge undertaking. The, the idea of rebuilding the Internet isn't particularly practical. What can be done in the next year or two practically? What yeah. would you like to see begin to at least make the Internet less hackable? Yeah,
1: what, what I would like to see in in no particular order is a greater emphasis on authentication of people, not IP addresses. Some Some standards put in, whether by the industry itself, and I hesitate to say we need an FDA to to oversee coding, but some standards on coding. So companies aren't incentivized incentivized to rush software to market because they make money on the theory that they can always patch it later. That just creates so much insecure uh, software that it becomes problematic. Thirdly, zero trust architecture. In most websites, in most online encounters, once you're into something, you're in. Right? Zero trust architecture says once you're in, you can't go anyplace else without keeping, without continually identifying yourself and certifying that you are who you are. That kind of stuff will help tremendously. Um, governance. Let me let me just give you this example. You lock your doors at night. You may have a fence around your home. We certainly have borders around the country, and we have police. And armies that defend all of these borders and all of these possessions. Now we're moving everything from the analog world into the virtual world. Everything's moving to cyberspace. But there is none of that. There's no locks on doors. There's no borders. There's no police. If your money was gone tomorrow morning, Andrew, who would you call? I mean, we don't don't have
0: time. Unfortunately, I don't have any money. (laughs) Well,
1: then, then you're 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 perfect. You're you're bulletproof. But the problem is we we have no idea who the cyber police is. There's no cyber Coast Guard. We're defenseless. And that's what's got to change. Because the bottom line is technology is moving into the hands of fanatics, terrorists, and criminal cartels. And they are going to use it in ways that we never expected. Right now, technology in the hands of a country like Russia or China, they're not going to take down the United States because the United States will take down them and or for China. If they take down the U.S. economy, they've destroyed their own economy. So there's a mutually assured destruction theory like nuclear war going on there. But that's not going to happen with terrorist cartels and criminal cartels. They're just going to use this stuff to get what they want or have fun and for fun and profit. And that's the danger.